Romans chapter 6 today, if you would, take your Bible and join me, Romans chapter number 6. While you're turning, let me ask you if you have had this experience, as I'm certain most, if not all of us have at some time or the other. Have you ever been having a conversation and you're talking and you're just going on and on and you're, you're having this conversation and then you turn to the person that you're talking to and they are no longer present? Have you ever had that happen to you? How many of you have done that on the phone before? Like you're just talking and you just went for, well, it does tell us something about ourselves. We were talking for 20 minutes and we, we didn't know that, you know, they haven't heard us for the last 15. So there is something about having this conversation and you're talking and then you turn and your spouse is, you know, they're, they're in another room or whatever. And now it would be a little strange. And so, yeah, and so I was at the store and then this person came up and, this person came up and, you know, if you keep talking and there's nobody there, you have a problem, okay? Please see Dr. Zacharias after the service. But, but if you're the kind of person like most and you are having this conversation and then you turn and see, oh, there's no one there, I suspect that most people would change their action. I say that to help us understand once again that the Apostle Paul is helping us understand someone is no longer there. And if you don't change your actions accordingly, you are in a sense acting in a fantasy world, a world that is disconnected from reality. And the point that I think Paul and obviously God the Holy Spirit through this pen is saying is that our knowing should impact our behaving. The Apostle Paul has spent nearly six chapters in Romans helping us to understand what to believe so that we will know how to behave. Now let's take just a moment and, and again, at least foundationally understand something that at times I feel like as a church, and I'm speaking broadly, not limited or, or certainly specifically to campus church, although I think all of us should do this evaluation. At times, churches have focused on the doing, on the behaving prior to the believing. In other words, we might even be guilty ourselves of saying, just tell us what to do and I'll do it. But you know, the Apostle Paul doesn't start there. God in his wisdom says, you need to know how to think so you will know how to act. And, and many times to, to our shame, we say, just tell me what to do. I just want to know what to do. Uh, is this right or is this wrong? Can I or can't I? Should I or shouldn't I? Just tell me what to do. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. Let's pause for just a minute because, you know, your world is going to change. Your circumstances are going to be uncertain. Your cultures are going to be varied. So let's start with how to think. What is it that I believe? And he's not just saying, well, just believe it enough so it becomes your reality. He says, let me give you truths upon which you can believe and if you are holding on to the right belief, then you're going to know how to behave. And so that's where we find ourselves again in Romans chapter 6. 
Look, if you will, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 6. The Bible begins with a word that I'd encourage you to underline or highlight or circle in your Bible. It begins with knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Here's our word again. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, and here's the next word I'd encourage you to underline or circle. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither, and here's the third word that I'd encourage you to mark or underline, neither yield ye, your members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, here it is again, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The title of our message this morning is three important words for victory. Three important words for victory. These are, I believe, some of the most important words in all of Scripture that every Christian should be intimately familiar with if you want to enjoy the victory and the life that God has fully provisioned you and people like me to live. So let's begin with, with our first word. The first word is no, no. Paul has been laying the groundwork quite well. In fact, we know about the powerful law of sin and death. We know that we have this new identity in Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul begins with knowing this, knowing who I am. And then he goes on into that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, we cannot for any length of time behave in a way that is different from what we believe. Our belief will eventually catch up to us. We might go through some, some motions of something, but you are going to be hard-pressed to keep living a life that you don't truly believe is true. It becomes disingenuous. We, we feel like we're just going through motions. You can say, no, 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 I believe. But if we don't fully believe, there are reasons why we do all kinds of things on a daily basis, some as simple and as basic as brushing our teeth. And we do so because we have a basic intrinsic understanding. There is some value in doing what we're doing. But there may have come a time when you stop doing something. You say, I don't, I don't perceive any benefit from taking this vitamin. I don't know why I am going through this schedule. I don't believe in, and our beliefs 
in, in such a basic fashion of humanity impact our behavior. So Paul is saying, you're going to have to know what is it that you believe. And he's trying to surround us with the facts of our situation in Christ. You know, there are a lot of things that seem inconsistent with, with our belief. But we go back to, what do I know? There's probably not a person here who hasn't had a long day and even a late night. In fact, maybe you, you crashed on your bed tired about midnight and, and all of a sudden one of the kids starts crying about two and, and someone's sick and, and you're staying up late into the evening and you know that alarm clock's going to go off at 5.30 but you have to do this or maybe you had a project that was due, maybe some work responsibility was calling and it was a long night well into the morning. And have you ever felt like you pillowed your head and just moments went by and then an alarm clock went off and you said, it doesn't feel like 5.30 already, but all of the, the moon and the planets and the stars and the sun, in fact, the galaxy is saying it is in fact 5.30. Your feelings may not say it, but the reality of all of the world does. And you know, there are times in your Christian existence that you may say, I just don't feel like. And Paul doesn't begin with, how do you feel about this? Paul begins with knowing this. This is the case for the believer who has found his new identity in Jesus Christ. This is the person who understands I have died with him, I am buried with him, and now I am risen with him. Thinking correctly results in living correctly. And this is our great responsibility. Now, there are some questions that I think we all need to say, do I have the right answers to these? If I'm going to say knowing this, what are the questions that every believer should accurately answer? Well, first of all, who is the old man that was crucified with Christ? Because Paul uses that terminology, we're reading it often in scripture, that the old man is, so who is, what is this old man crucified with Christ? We would say that is your old self. That is the former you. Remember, you can still act like your old self, but your old self was in fact crucified with Christ you now have a new name you have a new identity you have a new position you have a new future do you know the old word is not translated archaios um, archaic having to do with sequential time the word old here is translated peleos peleos it has this idea of it's to be discarded it doesn't serve use anymore it's not old chronologically, it's just old in that this is worn out and I don't need this any longer. This is to be discarded. The old you, it, it has no further usefulness. It is completely laid waste. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this. Understand that the old man is not there. The only way to stop living as if he were still there is to realize he is not there. If we but saw this as we should, we would really begin to live as Christians in this world. 
Again, this is like talking to someone who is no longer there. It's like mailing your mortgage payment to a creditor when the creditor has already marked paid in full. I mean, why would you continue to pay a creditor that no longer holds the title deed? And in our Christian experience, when we start to understand, I have a new master and I don't owe the old master a dime, I start to see my new position. This is the point that Paul's trying to make by saying, realize your old self is no longer there. He was crucified with Christ and no longer lives. You can still act like he does, but this would be living in a world that is non-existent. So what questions do I have to answer? Well, who is the old man that was crucified with Christ? That's the old self. Then we also have to answer, what is the body of sin? The body of sin. He says again in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Okay, I think a good way to understand what does this mean, the body of sin? I think we would understand it if we insert the word, the vehicle of sin. The means by which sin actually takes root, the body of sin. Here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that your body is sin. We are saying that it becomes the vehicle by which sin finds its its place from point A to point B. We're saying that we're supposed to now say this vehicle no longer has the responsibility to transport that which is sin. Now I submit my body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. So basically we're understanding this vehicle of sin is our body. We could say that our body has the power or the ability to sin, but our body is not moral or immoral, it's just a body. So when you were saved, sin lost its authority over you, but you didn't lose your ability to sin. Our body, it is the vehicle in which both righteousness and unrighteousness find a ride. Sin finds its source in our will but finds its instrument in our tongue, our hands, our eyes, our ears, our feet. Sin simply uses our body as a vehicle. So what is this body of sin? Well, it's the means by which sin finds some outlet, some opportunity. So he says, okay, the body of sin. And then he goes on, well, let's answer this next question. What does it mean when it says the body of sin was destroyed? That can be a little confusing, can it? Because, okay, so, so I don't have to sin anymore because I have a new master. The old man was crucified with Christ. This body, it is just a vehicle. We're not saying this is moral or, or immoral. It's just a body, a means by which something is going to be fleshed out. So if the body of sin was destroyed, I mean, what, what, what does that even mean? Okay, this is a really important point and I think something that at times if we don't rightly understand, we, we get hung up on this point. The body of sin destroyed. When we hear the word destroyed, we oftentimes associate it with another word like annihilated. Um, it is completely destroyed. It is obliterated. But that's not what the Greek word means here. It doesn't mean that it's annihilated, that it's obliterated. It is completely destroyed. The Greek word translated here is katergeo. 
katergeo. It means to be rendered powerless, inoperative. It, it actually means to be unemployed. It doesn't have a job any longer. Or you might say it's out of business, out of business. Okay, how many of you have ever, um, how many of you have ever run out of gas in your vehicle before? How many of you have ever had that? Uh, how many of you are really gifted at getting it down really close to where it's almost going to? Yeah. And how many of you have ever guessed wrong before? Okay. When I was a kid, when I got my first car, my first car, well, it sounds cool. It was a 1969 Plymouth Barracuda. And to me, it was like, I, I got the car for 125 bucks. It was a steal. Okay, and, and I think they were stealing from me. So I got that car, 125 bucks, and I loved that car. But I'm telling you, I know that the top nine-tenths of the gas tank were rusted because I only put, you know, give me a dollar's worth. You know, and back in that day, you could actually get some gas for a dollar. But man, I just had such little gas in there. And you could feel, you know, you're driving and all of a sudden it starts to sputter because that thing is about to, and you got to get some gas in it quickly. Well, if you've ever run out of gas, you know that the vehicle is not destroyed. It is simply rendered inoperative. It is all there. It's all intact. It can be fueled again, but it is out of gas. It's out of business. It's, it's shut down. This is a little insider secret, okay? So don't tell anybody, but this is an insider secret. So in my office, I have a lamp on a table that is just there for show. It's just there for looks. Now it has all the parts. It has a cord. In fact, you probably can't see it. If you come into my office, you probably can't see that that cord is not plugged in. But from where I sit at my desk, I can actually see underneath the couch where that cord runs. And the cord runs down the little end table. It runs along the wall and then it just sits there. Uh, now, I could go in every day and turn that lamp on, but nothing's going to happen because it's not plugged into its source of power. All it needs is to be plugged in, and that lamp will flash to light. There is something about your vehicle that is not annihilated. It is out of business. It no longer has any responsibility to its old master. You no longer have to plug in. You no longer have to listen to the roar of the lion that says, you must obey me. Now, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That relationship has been officially severed. Now, that vehicle can still be fueled with the wrong source but it no longer need be. And when I start to understand, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to listen to you. I, I don't have to use my body as a vehicle of sin. I have a new master. I have a new identity. I have a new ability. I no longer have to submit this vehicle, this body to sin. Paul wants us to know we have in fact died to sin. It happened once and for all. In Romans chapter six, beginning in verse number eight, it says, now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, listen, 
death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, okay, we all agree. We all get it. We know Christ died once unto sin. We know We know that now he lives and he ever lives. He dies no more. We all know that. But did you know that because Christ died unto sin once, that means that your identity in his death is forever settled. Now it's my responsibility to to believe it, to live in light of it, and to live the life of Christ in my new identity. This is what we need to know. It is the first of those powerful words in this trilogy of three that really bring us to Christian victory. So let's look at the next word. The first one, know. Now look at the next one. Verse number 10 is where we're going to pick this up. Romans 6 verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, now pause right there. Remember, okay, all of this happened to Christ. In that he died, he died unto sin once. In the same fashion, just as it happened to Christ, you understand this happened to you. Likewise, just like his, this is yours. Likewise, let's go on. For in that he died, he he died unto sin once. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Okay, we're reminded again, he died unto sin once. We stopped trying to do that, which he already did. And Paul is saying that we must reckon it to be so. All right, how many of you grew up in the South? How many of you are Southerners, okay? How many of you are Northerners? Northerners, oh man, those hands came up quickly. How many of you are divided? No, 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 I don't wanna know that, okay. So we have some Southerners, we have some Northerners. Now I'm telling you, I grew up in the North, but I've lived longer now in the South than I have in the North. So I have learned, for example, when I first moved to the South, the first time I I lived in the South was here in Pensacola. And um, people said, hey, to me all the time. Hey, well, I'd never heard people say hey before unless I was watching the Andy Griffith show, okay? I just never heard people say that. We said hello, hello, but people down south, they're like, hey. And uh, it felt kind of funny to me. It was, it was almost this, you know, like I'm gonna try it out. And so people like, hey, 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 and I tried it. Hey, you know, it was a little awkward, but I got away. And I say hey all the time now. And people would use the word reckon in a different way in the South. They would say, I reckon I'm going to go down to the filling station and get me an RC coal in the moon pie. You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> I reckon, okay, they would say, I reckon it's going to rain. Going to mess up our fishing. You know, that kind of a thing. I reckon. How many of you use the word reckon in that way? That's your, okay, don't use it that way. It's a bad way to use the word. It doesn't mean that, okay? I mean, you can have your RC Cola and Moon Pie, but don't reckon, you know, I reckon I will. Do you know what it means? It means make it so. You say, that's exactly what I mean. Okay, all right. The the word reckon is such a powerful word. 
The, the Greek word is one that like, oh, I never thought of it in that way before. The Greek word is logizomai. Logizomai. We, we get our word logic from the word reckon that is translated here. The logic of this, okay, hey, knowing this, it all adds up. Like, oh, hey, I, I, I can put all that. That all makes sense. There's no missing piece. Everything is, is square and even. Uh, all the accounts are settled. This is a logical conclusion to I know who I am in Christ. And now I reckon it. I add all of this up and logically this makes sense in my life. To compute. It means to count, to calculate. In classical Greek, it's used to reflect, to think of the results that flow out of some given fact. Okay, if these are all of the factors that are taking place, this is the logical conclusion. In the New Testament, the word reckon is used 41 times. In the book of Romans, it's used 19 times alone. Do you think that the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate some important truth to people like me who oftentimes need the value of repetition? He's saying, you have now these facts. What are you going to do with that? Start adding them together and what you're going to conclude is this has powerful implications in my life. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. What he's saying is this is not a mental game. Do you know what God's not asking you to do? He's not asking you to just sprinkle your Christianity with some pixie dust and believe it enough so that finally it's going to become my new reality. He's not asking you to do that. He's saying, okay, I want you to evaluate all that has taken place, the reality of Jesus Christ. Let's think about the historical facts of his death his burial, his resurrection, and its implications in your life. He's saying, let's, let's bring all of these things together and come to some logical conclusions. If you've, ever, if you've ever unknowingly overdrawn your bank account, it's because you believed something was there that was not actually true. And it doesn't matter how much you believe it. It doesn't matter how much you thought. I thought there was enough there. You unknowingly, but your belief was intact. No, 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 I didn't, I didn't do that. I felt so bad. I didn't know that. Okay, but if you knowingly, well, that's just breaking the law. That's wrong to do. But if you did it unknowingly, you believed it was there. No matter how much you believed it, it didn't alter the facts, the reality, the logic of your bank account. Let's say you're a business owner and you have a... Um, you have a responsibility, a payroll that's $20,000. So you have to, to write checks that you're going to sign, put your name on, and it's $20,000, but you check your account and there's only $5,000 in the account. Well, you can't, you can't in good conscience sign those checks, hand them to your employees because you do not have the resources. You've considered all the facts and it's not there. It's just not going to happen. But in the mail that day, you had some, some outstanding things that people had to submit payment for. And you received receipts for $35,000. 
And so you now have checks for 35,000. You went to the bank, you deposited those checks in the bank. Now you have a total of $40,000 in the bank and a $20,000 payroll. Now you've considered the reality of your situation and you are acting in accordance to the logic. Everything adds up, it figures. How often in our Christian life do we go by something other than the reality of who we are in Christ? I just don't feel like I can do this. I just, I, you know, I just know myself. I'm so weak in this area. Well, you might be weak, but I know one who is strong. Well, the devil is so powerful. I know he walks about as a roaring lion, but I also know that there is one who is the great power, not just a the great power. When we start to consider who am I truly, my feelings take a back seat to my knowing. And here's what he says. He says, okay, knowing this, because of all this, in light of all this, reckon it to be so. One commentary on Romans said, this has nothing to do with wishful thinking nor is it an activity that makes something come to pass. It is an acknowledgement of and an acting upon something that is already true. You know, in chapters three to five, Paul deals with the fact that Christ died for sin. However, notice the word specifically used here when dealing with the fact that Christ died unto sin. For, verse number 10, for in that he died, okay, he died for sin, For in that he died, he, and then we could say also, he also died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. You get this idea that, that, okay, in light of the fact that Christ died for sin, I no longer live unto sin. I now live unto God. I present myself to him. Now, there was something that was died for And I was living unto, I don't have to live unto sin any longer. Likewise, he says in verse number 11, same verbiage, same same use of words. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love again that word, likewise, he's saying in the same fashion. So again, why do we struggle with reckoning ourselves dead unto sin? I think because many have never grasped this truth and so have never acted upon it. Have you ever had someone show you how to use something that you already have? Okay, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had your children or your grandchildren teach you how to do something on your phone? Well, I hear lots of, lots of, uh, um, inadvertent amens like oh yeah well who hasn't done that okay well that that means it, it always had that ability it always had that functionality you just like how do I do this and so then you hand it to your three-year-old and they just like and then they hand it back to you okay now it could always do that you just didn't know how and you know maybe in the Christian life there is so much that it's like well you mean it does that too You mean that's available to me? You mean I have the freedom to live like that? Yes, that's exactly what that means. He says, all right, now knowing this, you have to know some things. And then add it all up, put this together, reckon it to be in fact so. 
And then let's look at the last of these three words. Verse number 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are indeed, in fact, alive from the dead and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law. You have no more obligation to the law. What am I under? I am now under grace. The word yield, it simply means surrender. It means, we might understand this better. It means present this to the rightful owner. Yield to the rightful owner. If, if I know that, okay, this is the rightful owner. This is the one who, who now has the title deed. I don't present this to the old owner, the old master. I present this to the new. Yield your members as instruments. You say, well, what is this body of sin that was destroyed? No, 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 remember destroyed, put out of business. I no longer have to present myself to my old master. Now yield to the right one. Have you, have you ever, you know, wondered who gets to go first when you come up to certain certain driving situations. Like who gets to go first? Maybe, maybe two people pulled up, you know, at an intersection at the same time and we wonder, and there, there are these principles of, and, and okay, if I'm turning and, and do I have, can I, you know, it, sometimes it's a little confusing, but there is something that provides clarity whenever, you know, it's placed in the right position. And that's just a sign. Many times we see it when we're coming on to some kind of an interstate. And it's just this, this upside down triangular sign that says yield. It means that someone else is the rightful possessor of that, you know, part of, of the road. So now I see that and like, okay, if someone else is coming, they are the ones who are the rightful possessors. I give them the right of way. And what Paul is saying is, don't you give yourself, don't you insert yourself in a way that, no, 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 I yield God to you. I yield myself to you. I, I yield these eyes, these hands, these feet, this mind. I yield myself and this, this body, this instrument to become an instrument of righteousness. Now, it once was used where it felt like it was the rightful owner, but I'm redeemed. One came, a rightful owner came, and now he has bought me back. I belong to him. Many people try the idea, and in our Christianity, sometimes this is where we're living. We're living in this idea of, I'm just going to resolve to do better. Have you ever been there before? I'm going to resolve. I, I have to do better um, and w- will you help me be better? And I'm, I'm going, I resolve to never, whatever. Do you know, sometimes we even misquote passages of scripture and, and we start to think like, I'm, I'm going to, James, James was one that I think oftentimes we misquote. In James chapter four, verse number seven, we often say, resist the devil and he will flee from you, Right? You, you better include the whole thing or none of it works. Don't ever forget, submit yourselves therefore to God. Do you know what that's saying? Yield to God. Surrender to God. 
All right, yield your members. God, these are not my eyes. Why would I look at that? Because these are not mine, and I don't have to look at that. I have a new master. I have a new me. I am no longer bound to that. And no matter how he roars, no matter what he tells me I am, I know who I am. I am a new creature, fully his. And so I'm listening to my new master, and I don't have to do that anymore. I yield I yield to you. I yield these instruments. This belongs now entirely to you. You see what a powerful change of outcomes begins to take place when I know who I am. I have logically added all this up and I've reckoned it to be so. And now I yield myself to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God so you can resist the devil and you will see he does flee from you. The word submit, it it is the word yield. It's used all over scripture. And it really comes with this idea of to place yourself underneath the direction and the authority of another. One pastor said, in this present life, sin will always be a powerful force for the Christian to reckon with. But it is no longer master, no longer Lord, and it can and must be resisted. Sin is personified by Paul as a dethroned but still powerful monarch who's determined to reign in the believer's life just as he did before salvation. The apostles' admonition to believers, therefore, is for them to not let sin reign because it now has no right to reign. It now has no power to control a believer unless the believer chooses to obey it and the lusts thereof. Again, this has to do with knowing who we truly are, reckoning it to be so, and yielding ourselves to our rightful master. Have you ever thought about this before? This knowing, this is informational. This is information I need to have. Hey, I'm having a conversation and nobody's there. That's important information. I act on that information. Reckoning, This is a correct calculation. I have added all this together. It actually makes logical sense. Yielding, that is application. What am I going to do with this information, this calculation? It is now in my life the right application. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter said it this way. In 1 Peter 2, 9, and then in verse number 11. In verse number 9, Peter wrote this. He said, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should, here's what you should do with that, adding everything up, knowing who you are. Here's what you should do, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he, he concludes it with, dearly beloved, I beseech you in light of that information, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. In other words, you're now understanding this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. There's a popular slogan that we, that we hear often and it says, just do it. You know, sometimes we resort to that in the the Christian life. I just got to do it. Really, what, what he would say is just believe it. Because if you are believing rightly, you are reckoning this to be so. 
there is going to be a right doing of the Christian life. Twice a month, Campus Church does something for myself, for all of our pastors, for our, our pastoral team, our church staff. Twice a month, Campus Church deposits something into our accounts that we draw upon. And they do so graciously. I'm grateful for it. And I know where it comes from. I know that the church is, is this instrument that they said, we believe God would have us do this and they take care of us. I'm thankful. How, how wrong it would be for me to disparage campus church and how they're caring for me or for me to live like they are not. And yet how much more problematic is it when a Christian lives like they are not truly being cared for by a heavenly father who has made the ultimate deposit for you to draw upon and then I've added it all up and it all makes sense. I know who I am. I know in whom I have believed. I reckon it to be so. And now, because of these things, I yield myself unto God. Are you yielding to him? Did you this past week? Was your life an evidence of the same? Why not this week, today, tomorrow morning, as you go throughout the week, begin asking yourself the question, what do I know? Have I added it all up and I reckon this to be the reality of my life? That being the case, I yield myself as an instrument of righteousness unto God. And see if your believing doesn't truly impact your behaving. 